Welcome back. We are delighted to be back with you again after a very eventful summer. Uh, We did have a very lively debate on the events of the summer on Upfront on uh, Monday night. And of course, we are talking about the maelstrom that RT has now found itself in. A really important part of that debate, the reason we're still talking about it, is that it's what exactly is public service broadcasting and why should we care if it's undermined or if it's under threat. It's such a huge and, as I say, important area that we thought we should get for you an international perspective. So I am delighted to say we are being joined from New York by Shauna Kinnear. Uh, Shauna is from Longford, uh, but she has built the most extraordinarily impressive career. Uh, in journalism outside of Ireland. She's worked in the Financial Times in New York. Uh, She's bagged a couple of Emmy nominations for her work as a reporter and a producer. She's worked in Channel 4, in the BBC, in PBS in the United States. And she is currently Director of Communications for the George and Amal Clooney Foundation. Uh, So, obviously, we're going to find out what George and Amal are really like. Uh, But first... Vincent Brown actually tweeted this uh, here uh, in the last week. The question, what is public service broadcasting? I think public broadcasting is so, so, so important. Um, I think it goes side by side with a functioning democracy. I don't think you can have one without the other. I think it's critical in any country to have a free press and independent press whereby a public broadcaster is serving the public. You know, I I am aware of everything that has gone on in RTE over the summer months. I happened to be in Ireland, actually, in Donegal this summer, and I was kind of listening in on the radio. And I was very sad to hear about, you know, what was happening and especially sorry for the people working in RTE, kind of, you know, the great people and great journalists like yourself, Katie, who are there. And also what stood out to me was like what, what people, what politicians, what leaders at RTE should be concerned about is saving public broadcast Um, journalism and also regaining trust in the public. What is it though? Well in my view public broadcasting is serving the public. You are giving something that the public deserves, that the public needs, so information that is not contaminated or you don't have um, money kind of getting in the way of information that the public are receiving and I mean like nobody's interfering editorially everything is independent so everything that's in the public interest whether it's um what's going on in politics what's going on with climate change so everything is objective and and, and unfiltered but verified and just like very very good objective journalism that's what it is and it, it it's a service i really it's it, like it's it's something that a democracy must have and living in the us it's become even clearer in in some ways when I started out as a journalist and I should qualify everything I say in this interview with the fact that I've never worked in Ireland as a journalist or at RT. I have made a film in Ireland and that was an experience in itself about abortion laws Um, but I've never worked uh, in Ireland but I have as you said Katie up top that I have worked for BBC for Channel 4 and for PBS and I can tell you now they are critical and they're amazing institutions that should be and must be saved, especially in the US when you kind of, I can barely watch the television anymore. Genuinely, the only thing I would watch is PBS. And again, I'm a little bit subjective because I have worked for them, but they're the only ones that I know are truly, truly independent. They're not, you know, it's not a circus when you turn on the television. It's solid, independent journalism. And it's really journalism 
independent journalism goes hand in hand with democracies. And you can see all around the world in so many countries that kind of, you know, there's more authoritarian um, regimes creeping into our world right now. And the reason that's happening is because people don't have access to good information. We had Ivan Yates on with us on Monday night on on our Upfront programme. And his take on it was that RT has to slim down dramatically and move towards the uh, publisher broadcaster uh, model. That is, of course, Channel 4, the the model that Channel 4 was built around. Um, Now, you've made programmes for Channel 4. Can you talk to me about, just explain to people how that might work, how that model works? Yeah, I've made... about 40 films for Channel 4. It's it's like the bulk of my journalism career was at Channel 4. I loved it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. So so I made documentaries for both Dispatches and Unreported World. So one is a was the domestic investigative series, which is Dispatches. The other was their foreign affairs series, both hugely respected um, programs um, that really did groundbreaking journalism. None of them were made in-house. So every single one of those programs was was made by production companies. Um, For example, Unreported World, we made it in Oxford in a production company out there. And with dispatches, they had various different production companies make them all over England and even in Belfast as well. Um, So that's the broadcast model. model. Channel 4 is publicly owned, but commercially funded. You know, it it has advertising as well. Um, I don't think it's a bad model to explore um what i it, it's not an overnight thing i i think with channel 4 i've heard this argument before but with channel 4 their whole dna is based on risk taking so you know you, you or you would from what i understand need quite a rethink and you know you need a carte blanche in front of you to have the right people there taking calculated risks willing to go the extra mile go against the grain annoy people but like open up conversations that have never been opened up for, before or go to territory that just you wouldn't normally go to. And I think I loved working at Channel 4. You know, it was my bread and butter. I learned so much. It was it was so hard and it was a baptism of fire in many, many ways. Um, but it is a wonderful place. I'm so, so thankful they were saved in the end. But the other thing I would say about Channel 4, what they were very good at, um, it's a very diverse place. And that's why the output was so good because it was coming from different people. It wasn't just a bunch of, sorry to say, but like white posh men at the top who were dictating what we should see and what we want to know and what we want to learn about. Like that wasn't the case. And I would say BBC Three is, is similar, like their DNA is quite similar. You'll have young people's commissioners, um, really diverse people from different walks of life, different nationalities, different religions. You know, all of that is really, really important if you wanted a model like Channel 4. It's not an overnight fix, but it would require an, a complete rethink, I, I, I suspect. To say, I mean, if people aren't familiar with your work, you did some amazing work for Channel 4 over those years. I mean, for both the dispatches and the the undiscovered world. Just talk me through, like, what is the one you're most proud of from those from that output? I mean, there's there's so many. What, what I loved um, when I was a junior producer at, at Channel 4, um, you know, one thing I was um, was the person who came with ideas. I recognize that, you know, I might not be the best journalist um, there or I mightn't, you know, have the right credentials from Oxford or Cambridge. But what I did have was the ideas. And I remember my commissioner, a wonderful Belfast woman um, saying to me one day, I really this was 2013. I really want something you'd come up with something from Iraq this year. And this was kind of pre ISIS. So she was like, but I really want to see something 
um, with both um, Shia and Sunni people and not not bombs. Like that's, you know, when, that's usually the usual output, right, that we see. So I said, okay, great. And I went away and I remember um, late one night um, watching ballet on the BBC and it was just so beautiful. And I was like, oh, that, it's just so peaceful to watch. And then I thought, wow, I wonder is there a ballet school in Baghdad? And so I started, this is my process, kind of start re reverse engineering into a situation where I found, I think it was an LA Times article from the 90s that uh, described this, the most like beautiful oasis in Baghdad where uh, both Sunni, Shia, Christian boys and girls came to perform and pursue their art. art. And um, I rang my fixer the next day in Baghdad and I said, hey, can you know, can you check to see if this story still exists? And he was like, are you crazy? Like, this is the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. Of course, we're not doing that. We're going to do, you know, follow the the fire ambulance or, or the or a fire brigade rather. Um, so anyway, he got back to me and he said, yeah, it does exist. It's kind of in a clandestine place now, but kids do cross the city and dodge bombs to 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 go and um become ballerinas so anyway um that it, is it, such a brilliant story yeah dancing in the danger zone it was great and um like stuff like that like I was so proud of that because it was thinking outside of the box you know it what you know it was like I knew the audience would get the kids because you know they were just like you and I they have you know they're passionate about something and they're willing to, they are willing to risk their lives to pursue their passion and it went down a treat and it just showed Baghdad in a very different light than what we were seeing at the time because it was a very kind of hot summer there you know there was a lot of bombs going off and it was just something so different so beautiful and just showed real people um and uh, yeah th there were so many moments like that at Channel 4 but again it was this open space where I would knock on the door and or like you know text the commissioner you have to come for a coffee with me I'm sitting in this amazing story I have access blah 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 you know come come and talk to me and you know bless her she always would entertain me um but like that that's the process in channel four open doors risk takers crazy ideas not laughed at well sometimes laughed at but like you know getting stuff done and getting stuff across the line was hugely hugely fulfilling Yeah, can I just ask you about the uh, finances and the like money talk around these stories? Like for unreported world, obviously involves travel and uh, people on the ground, and you know a lot of a lot of risk and you know possibly you know funds required for that. What were the conversations when you would bring a story to a commissioning editor about you know the, how to finance it? Yeah, great question. So with Unreported World, it was a series of eight films um, twice a year. So it was like set in stone that that would always happen. And there's an allocated budget, not a lot of money, as you as, as you said, and always made by freelance producers um, and directors. So we were a tiny team. Um, when you went out into the field, it was two people. So I would be like the reporter and producer with the director. And then we'd always work, importantly, with local producers who were completely integral to any good story happening um so you'd, you'd always be watching the budget everybody was hostile trained um um but they you know there was always funding for those stories every single year because channel four saw that as being important you know of course it's not a money maker of course you know it aired on a friday evening <laughs> like who's sitting in watching telly on a friday evening nobody but um they were important stories to tell you know the, many of those were investigations that had to be revealed and they were and they did cost money when you were especially going into hostile environments that you know might kind of require extra security or like flak jackets or whatever that does all add up and 
fair play to Channel 4. They know that that's not what advertisers probably want, but they also recognize that that's what the public needs to know. And there was always this, you know, I guess a balancing act behind the doors in Channel 4 between having, you know, Gogglebox and the likes of Unreported World uh, on television. Um, and, you know, that is one thing I would love to see more of. I must say in RT, a lot more foreign reporting would be wonderful to see. And, you know, there's so many great journalists in Ireland who could do a great job of that. I wonder, is there the appetite for foreign reporting here, actually, that there might be in the UK or even in the US? Because you're obviously in Channel 4 bro- broadcasts to a much more diverse you know, international audience almost. You know, there's people in the UK from all over the world. Uh, and I suppose we're getting like that to some degree in Ireland, but we're not quite there yet. And I think there is a sense that you're kind of broadcasting to a niche market. And when, when funds are very limited, is that where is that where you can really justify your your big spends? I really think it's a disservice to the Irish audience not to have foreign reporting on television. Of course, you have it on the news, but it's often what I've seen is like clips from Reuters and somebody voicing it, which is fine. But like that deep reporting, I I, I really think um, Orti is doing a disservice by not like, at least exploring that. And And fair enough, you might not be able to make 16 films per year, but like, why not make three really, really good ones? Um, you know, and, and as you say, Ireland is becoming much more diverse for the better. Um, but equally, Irish people like from Longford want to see foreign reporting. They care about LGBTQ plus rights in China or wherever, too. You know, so I think, you know, I, I sense that an Irish audience would love content like that. I know that when you mentioned their LGBTQ, uh... Q plus rights in China was another one of your. It was an interesting one to make. I I loved making it. We went undercover into China um quite a few years back and were exposing clinics that were offering ele- offering electric shock therapy and conversion therapy in a bid to cure homosexuality. I'm putting inverted commas around that if, if nobody's watching a video, um, and it was high stakes. Um, it was quite dangerous. I would say. Um. And we successfully did manage to capture content whereby one of our um, one of the people we were working with did receive electric shock therapy. Um, it got very, very dangerous at the end. And our, our main characters were, were telling us that the authorities um, were calling to their place of work. And in fact, we actually knew that from day one that they knew we were there somehow. They'd uh, seen our communications. Um, so it was kind of cloak and dagger all along. And we were changing hotels here and there, you know, trying to kind of um, not have them on our tail the entire time. But it did get to a point where our lawyers took a step back and said, OK, you need to get out of the country immediately. And uh, without giving away too many tricks of the trade, but we did have to like find a place to secure our footage and and get out and m- most importantly, ensure that our main characters were safe and that they they in fact, still wanted us to um, pursue the film. They they kind of, you know, said it doesn't matter. We have to get this film out. And we did. Um, so, yeah, my, my, but my point is like an Irish audience, of course, would love that, you know, of, of course. No, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Of course, I do think Irish people are, are genuinely curious about the world and not just immediately around them uh, beyond. But I, when I like when I look at your CV, when I look at the kind of work you've done, just exactly that story and, and so many others, You've kind of had the sort of journalism career that when kids dream about journalism careers, that's what they imagine it's like. And it's actually like that for very few people. So I'm wondering, 
how did you make it? How did you you uh, form your journalism career in that likeness? Um, but I'm going to ask you an upfront question and then I'm going to find out more about that. So I need a number, 1 to 15. Um, 13. What was the last piece of music that you streamed? Oh, that's so funny. Um, LCD sound system, someone great. I have that on repeat a lot <laughs> in <Okay>. the mornings <laughs> to keep me going. <laughs> we, we saw them in New York back in, oh gosh, I think it was June with a bunch of Irish friends as well. Um, and yeah, slightly obsessed. It just gets me going in the morning, a bit of LCD. Okay, well then answer that question for me. How did you end up doing what you're doing? How did it, well, you didn't do journalism in college, did you? No, I did commerce with French in, in UCD and ended up in KPMG as an accountant for a little bit, um, possibly as uh, Ireland's worst accountant. So I left that after two years. And then, yeah, I, I don't know how, I mean, honestly, not to be a cliche, but like hard work, like that's all it was. As I said earlier, it wasn't that I was better than anybody else. Um, that's really true, but very, very hard work. And I'm persistent. And I ended up doing a master's in goldsmiths. Um, in 2008, kind of during the credit crisis, my parents were like, excuse me, you're quitting your job and moving to London. Sold the Ford Fiesta, paid my college fees. And then I ended up getting an a internship at the BBC. Um, a, a few of us from the class got that and was lucky enough um, to find a lovely Irish man in there, um, Morris Hartnett, um, who, who, I don't know, saw something, I guess. And I, I, I called the BBC, either physically called or phone called them. Um, um, and after my internship with them kind of every few weeks until they finally gave me a job as a researcher for three weeks um, as a freelancer. And then I never really left after that. Um, and it was the same with Channel 4, actually. I kind of mildly stalked the entire Unreported World team, took them all for coffees, found them on Twitter, took them for coffees, and then eventually got to the commissioner, Siobhan. And, um, was she like, Irish? She's, she is Irish. She's from Belfast. Siobhan Sinnerton, um, wonderful woman. Um, who's still a very good friend. And I, I I definitely stalked her also kind of quite um, heavily and was at events when she was here. Oh, I'm here again. You know, what a coincidence. And then she finally, finally succumbed to a coffee and I came equipped with a few ideas and she actually gave me the job as associate producer in that meeting um, for Unreported World. And that was it. I think I was there for seven years after that. So um, yeah, persistence and a bit of hard work. Let's talk about what happens when there isn't a culture of public service broadcasting um because i think you know people here we 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 we've grown up with this you know we've had it since rt was created and even before that uh the broadcasting we were familiar with would be coming from the bbc so you know a long tradition of you know exceptionally high standards in terms of public service broadcasting but there are some countries that have never had that or maybe have had it and have lost it and you've worked in, in, in some of those places, Shauna. So just tell us what it looks like and feels like to be in a country where there is no touchstone for, you know, information you can depend on. Well, actually, genuinely living in the US, I mean, you know, there is PBS, which really is wonderful. But a lot of, you know, the networks and Fox News is, of course, the obvious one. Like when you turn on the TV, it's like a circus. Everything is opinion based. It's not fact based. Um I mean, there's mistruths all over the place on, on Fox News, as we all know. Um, and, 
it just creates more division in society. That's not a new story, it, but it genuinely does. You know, America is so split down the middle right now. And, you know, you kind of if you speak to I'm, I'm, I'm not on either side, I'm, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat like I, you know, I, I but if you speak to a Republican, you can kind of you see their information is coming from Fox News and you can kind of that that is their only source of information or their Facebook feeds is is filled with kind of because of the algorithm, it's filled with this, th that type of content and the same content and they never see the other side. And it's the same with, you know, um, people on the more liberal side. They don't understand where Republicans are coming from or, um, you know, it, it just creates a divide in society when people aren't getting proper, solid information, independent journalism, stuff that's been verified um, and fact checked. OK, now we get to... How did you get the job you now have? Ah, yeah, that's a funny one as well. Um, um, Samantha Barry, um, editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine, wonderful woman and friend uh, who used to work at the BBC, told me about this job when I, I think I was... I, yeah, I think I was heavily pregnant at the time and um, I was doing a podcast called Media Tribe and I kind of said, oh, God, comms. <laughs> I think I shivered a little bit. Um, you know, no disrespect to anyone else working in comms, but it wasn't what I was pursuing or looking for. And then um, then I looked into a bit more and it was all about impact and how we, you know, um, it was kind of like the next layer to journalism and, and actually a layer that I always found was missing in my documentaries. You know, you'd, they'd go out in Channel 4 and Twitter would be up in arms and everything, this and that, and then nothing would happen. I used to actually, in fact, go to Parliament myself in the UK and try to take people like Lord Alf Dubs for coffee and, and trying to like move the needle in that way just by myself after I'd finished my contract. But that's all to say that, that impact layer was really important to me. So um applied for the job, um, had a few um quite a few interviews and then an interview with George Namal at the very end. I think I'd just given birth and then, uh, yeah, took that over two years ago. And yeah, here I am <laughs> in New York, in my bedroom, um, working very hard. <laughs> okay, the question that we're all been waiting to ask, um, what is George and Amal really like? Very lovely and very, very dedicated to the foundation Um, very involved. Do you, do you work very closely with them or do you see them very odd time or how does yeah. it work? Yeah, no, I, at the moment I report directly to them Um, and you don't see them that often. I'll see them in a couple of weeks Um, in New York. Um, But yeah, they're, you know, very, very invested in this work. I mean, they've a, a fantastic track record of working in human rights, both of them. Um. And this is just kind of the next level, the next layer. And yeah, I mean, it's it's quite incredible how involved they are, I would say. You know, I think maybe many people might just assume it just has their name. But no, they they work very, very, very hard on this. OK, five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Uh, Favourite sandwich? Ham salad. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Uh, which Hogwarts house would you be in? Oh, God. I've no idea. Harry Potter's. <laughs> Do I know that? <laughs> This is a Harry Potter question. Gryffindor, right? Gryffindor. Gryffindor, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Favourite board game? Monopoly. Most useful swear word? Oh, can I say that? What does it start with? Well, do you know what? It's not my most useful one, but I hang around with a lot of Australians and the C word gets dropped in in an Australian accent in a very casual um, setting whereby it's a term of endearment. It, it was discussed heavily last weekend. So 
that crops into conversations with Aussies only, okay. not in a work environment ever. <laughs> okay. I can't imagine that working out in a meeting with George yeah. and Amal Clooney. No, 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 no. Only, only, only when I'm in Aussie company. That's, that's, we, we, we keep it for that. And that was Shauna Knair. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to join us uh, on Monday night and every Monday night for Upfront on RTE1 at 10.35 and of course on the RTE Club. Thank you.